Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. If you haven't been listening to the last several episodes, uh, we just did a two-part episode on QAnon. Abby is still on break. She'll be back pretty soon. So you're stuck with me for at least another month. But I've been really looking forward to this episode. And it was actually Abby's suggestion to bring on Eugene Perrier. Eugene is an incredibly prolific activist ever since I've known of him. Uh, he's been an important figure in this movement, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. He was heavily involved in the anti-war answer coalition. He's been involved in protests against the blockade of Gaza by Israel. He hosted his own show on Sputnik Radio for, I believe, a few years. He's a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. There was once a time where he almost ran on a ticket with Gloria Lariva to be vice president on that ticket, but he technically couldn't qualify because he was under 35 years old at the time. In fact, I don't want to sound patronizing to Eugene, but um, his book Shackled and Chained, which I recommend everybody check out, was released in 2013, and Eugene was only 27 years old, I believe, when that book was released. Now, Eugene also just helped launch a new independent news outlet called Breakthrough News. Go check them out on Twitter, at BT Newsroom. And I forgot to mention this very important history, is that Eugene was also really involved in the movement to give DC statehood status. Without his activism, I probably wouldn't even been aware of it as early as I was. Eugene is a brilliant dude with a very long history of extremely dedicated activism, and I'm very excited to bring him on the podcast. So here's my discussion with Eugene per year. Hey, Eugene, thanks for coming on the podcast again. It's been a while. Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited to be here, Robbie. Very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So first, I just wanted to ask you, Eugene, how are you doing? How is your family doing? during this extremely chaotic and confusing time, which includes, of course, a global pandemic still happening. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it really is. It feels almost surreal in a way. Um, I mean, I think all things considered, I've been holding up well. I mean, I, I think the baseline now, given how dire the situation is, you know, as of right now, knock on wood, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be healthy. You know, everyone in my immediate family is lucky enough to be healthy uh, and, you know, moving around. Uh, you know, obviously, I think we all know some people who've been affected by this, either their jobs, either their their lives. And so, you know, I think just the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm still standing very healthy, um, doing an exciting new thing that I'm, I'm really happy to be doing in terms of, of work with, with Breakthrough News, I do feel honestly like all things considered, whatever else is going on, like I'm very, very thankful for that. But yeah, I mean, I think this has been, you know, it's been everything. It's been ups and downs, right? I mean, I think the initial pandemic, um, you know, obviously there was so much tragedy 
but you know, quickly I think sort of turning into to anger at inaction. Um, but given the sort of context of quarantine, how is it going to happen? And then for this uprising to happen, you know, in many ways has been such a breath of fresh air um, to, you know, just kind of have the system in and of itself. I mean, it started with policing, but just kind of be called on Front Street. I mean, wherever it ends up, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it, it has just been sort of a, like a, a spring and summer wind. So I think that's been energizing for me. And of course, you know, the sadness of all these small businesses around the country uh, obviously going to be permanently closed because of this situation. It must sort of feel weird to be in the middle of that, essentially starting your own small business. I don't know if it's a for-profit venture. I'm assuming it's not, but you're essentially starting your own small business right at the beginning of this extremely chaotic situation. So what was that like? Yeah, yeah. We started, I mean, we were actually, believe it or not, supposed to. So we're in New York City um, and, and our, our where our studio is. Literally, like, the day they announced the quarantine in New York was the day we were, like, our first real week. So from Jump Street, we have had to record, like, from home, remotely. Um, we did go to Minneapolis, but basically you know, our entire plan thrown upside down. So it's been, it's been wild. And I have to say the fact we've pulled it off. Um, uh, I'm very, very, very happy with, uh, you know, the folks we have on our team. Well, I'm glad to hear that it's, that it's working out considering the circumstances and the environment that we're in now. I know just speaking for myself and obviously I don't want to make this about us or about yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> um, it seems rather inconsequential, but no, but I hear you just speaking for my own self. Um, you know, I'm an artist, I'm a musician. Uh, I can't imagine the sort of soul-crushing feeling that I would have if I was about to launch, you know, a project that I had been working on for a year or several years, right when this stuff all started happening. So I empathize with you. I'm sure that that didn't feel great. But I'm also happy that it seems like you're making the best out of the situation and you guys have produced a lot of content. Yeah, well, I mean... You know, it definitely sucks because the number one thing is we put in so much work to perfect our look and how we wanted it to be. Like, you know, we have our sets and da 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 da, and you feel so good about it. And then it's like, wow, all of this like great stuff. And we, I don't know if we, you don't know when you get to use it because it's such an unknown. Um, but I think we had come so far in like preparing in the, you know, few months we had just been like, you know, furiously trying to get ready, um, teach ourselves things, do all these other things that it was like, We've come way too far to not do, you know, just keep doing it and figure something else out. Like we've done, we've come this far, we were ready to go. Let's just figure it out. So, I mean, part of the way that it has worked more or less really was the fact that technology um, has become very advanced. I mean, I hate to say it like that. I mean, I'm not that old, I'm 34, but honestly, like the ability to, do things remotely was sort of beyond what I thought it was in terms of the quality. And, you know, we had to, you know, get different equipment and things like that to work it around with it. But I actually think that it was, I mean, it was difficult and it was daunting. The worst part is like recording from home, not having good backdrops. Anyone who does video knows exactly what I'm talking about and just like the annoyance of that. Um, but, you know, we were able to learn things and do things, um, find new programs, teach ourselves new tricks and different pieces like that. So I think we actually improved the look of our finished product over time, believe it or not, um, just because sort of, you know, the moment kind of 
if you were going to keep going, it sort of demanded you rise to the occasion, you know, and I think that everyone, I mean, we have a small team, but just like a really dedicated team of people. I can't even really take that much credit for it. I would say, you know, I mean, obviously I've done a lot of work on it, but I think, you know, especially on the technical side, um, we have some people who are just like willing to try to figure out every single problem, you know, no matter what. So, you know, I think it speaks to the nature of collective efforts, having like a good, strong collective effort when you do anything new and and relevant um you know it's not just about one person so yeah it's it's been interesting it's been tricky i think we've all learned a lot though um and we've done a lot of good work and like i said we were able to do some reporting from the field in minneapolis um as well which was uh you know i'm very grateful we have that opportunity too well keep up the great work eugene i think that it's really important what you're doing over there and um, i hope you guys have a lot of success moving forward before we get into the Black Lives Matter movement and the resurgence of the protests and all the energy that seems to be exploding out there, I wanted to address something that I think, you know, we hear a lot of this talk right now about populism and economic populism and how the right is, uh, you know, supposedly has this populist movement, <laughs> but yet we don't hear really anything from the right or even the neoliberal media establishment anymore about how unfair and borderline criminal it is that this country can't take care of its own people during this horrifying global pandemic situation. And yeah. all these major corporations and quote-unquote small businesses are getting huge loans from the federal government that include friends of Nancy Pelosi, you know, Democrats, relatives, Betsy DeVos's uh, shell companies, the Daily Caller receives an, a multiple $100,000 loan. So, you know, things like this are happening. The robber baron class is stealing all this money, cashing out while all the rest of us are left to suffer. I guess uh, first, Eugene, I just want to ask you, how do you identify politically? Would you call yourself a socialist? Yes. I mean, I, I, well, you know, I mean, in essence, I'm a communist, uh, but in the Marxist sense, right? So I believe in socialism like that between capitalism and communism. Um, like classes and no classes, there's got to be a transitional period in that socialism. So, I mean, I could go with either. Um, in the popular parlance, definitely, I'm more than happy. Uh, and a socialist is probably more relevant. So, of course, you know, all these conservative people are terrified of socialism. And the neoliberal media, uh, mainstream media like CNN, MSNBC, did a very, very good job of acting like they wanted to actually have the conversation of universal health care. They had these town halls about it and right. things like that. But, you know, conveniently, it seemed like the second Bernie exited the race, the entire media just completely dropped the conversation from the dialogue. People might not remember uh, that Bernie was actually still in the race when this pandemic first started. And just to refresh your memory, uh, the last debate that took place was actually a social distancing debate, a very creepy one, in fact, inside that right, weird, right. isolated, <laughs> special CNN room. You know, even though I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a Bernie supporter per se, Yeah, it, it was still very notable to me how it, just his presence in the race actually lifted that conversation up into mainstream dialogue. And here we are in the middle of an actual global pandemic when Probably the paramount issue that we should be talking about right now is free healthcare for everybody. And that conversation is completely absent from the dialogue. 
So is it just me, Eugene, or did the media drop that the second Bernie exited the race? Is that a coincidence? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think on a couple things. I mean, one on the healthcare, absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, as soon as Bernie was gone, I mean, even if we just take a step back, it, it, it in a way maybe makes sense when we look at the level of hostility from the media around the question of universal health care when Bernie was in the race. I mean, you know, every single debate on every single network throughout the entire primary dealt sort of, you know, ad infinitum with the issue of how are you going to pay for it? And no matter how many times everyone really, quite frankly, repeated the exact same points, but some obviously fake and some real, um, Bernie Sanders, and to her credit, sometimes Elizabeth Warren, like laying out just the obvious facts, although I have to say, I thought Bernie could have made much more use of the fact that the whatever the number was, the $42 trillion, it's going to cost so much money study from the Mercatus Center was like $32 trillion, I think it was, was like it said it would be less than if we just didn't do anything. I thought more hay could have been made of that. But the fact that that even exists, that sort of caveat to that Mercatus Center study, and that's almost never reported, but it's so frequently uh uh, you know, reported, oh, it's going to be so expensive. And the same thing over and over and over again. It just, no matter what the sort of mainstream media says, it obviously shows that they're not partisan. I mean, at a certain point, if you were being part uh, nonpartisan, quote unquote, uh, as they claim they are, impartial, you would turn that question around and ask the tough question of the Joe Biden or the moderate person um, about why they don't support universal health care, about why their plan leaves people uncovered, essentially why more people are going to die under their plan for no reason at all. Um, you know, that would you would do it. You would try to make it uncomfortable. But it was only negative framing and, and really false and misleading framing 100 percent directed towards Bernie consistently across every single debate to the exclusion of many other issues. And it's obviously a vendetta. And so, yeah, of course, as soon as he's gone, no surprise in a way they drop it to me. I don't think it's you know a conspiracy at all because they showed all along that their whole goal, really from my point of view about the media, is to discredit, for the mainstream media, seems, seems to be, when you look at the record, to discredit uh, the issue of, of universal healthcare. And I definitely think it's unbelievable in this massive worldwide global pandemic that the issue of universal healthcare is not front and center. And, and I mean, I, I guess in the context of how the media responds to the media, the, the political system and the way they sort of work in tandem and promote similar narratives, uh, how could it come up? Because there's no avatar for it, you know, because Biden won't push it, Trump won't push it. And so even though tens of millions of people want it, you know, it doesn't make news that they can easily package. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's deeply, deeply problematic uh, you know, what we've been seeing on that front in terms of the public health discussion. I mean, there's a number of other things about the public health discussion, but I say universal health care because it seems to me one of the main things we have to be thinking about in a pandemic is how do we strengthen our health system longer term, medium term, longer term, uh, since, you know, I think we can sort of assume this probably isn't the last pandemic. I think in the context of, you know, this issue, people have been warning for this about this for a while you know, climate change. There's also so many sort of existential crises that are facing us, but I don't know. Now I'm drifting. What was the second part of your question? Now I've, I've started rambling on the issue of the media, terrible coverage of universal healthcare. No, no, no. You totally, you, you answered both questions, but I, I wanted to go back to this idea of this, you know, all these small business loans. Cause if you actually look at the breakdown, 
of it. It's showing that the quote unquote healthcare industry got the most of these loans, something like $600 billion. Now, you know, that's obviously clearly all wrapped up in the health insurance system. These aren't going directly into like doctors and nurses' pockets. And here we are uh, left with a $1,200 check to get us through what is now a five-month-long global pandemic situation. It's disgusting. It's tragic. And some of those people haven't even gotten their $1,200 check yet. That's not even enough to pay rent in a lot of parts of the country. And I can't help but feel a little conspiratorial about this, um, which even it's almost sounds ridiculous to call it conspiratorial, but it seems like we're left with this completely false choice, this framing that's probably corporate and billionaire class driven, that we're now in this debate between we need to open things up completely or we need to keep things closed down. Yeah. And the fact that those are our only two choices right now in the national dialogue is some of the most manufactured bullshit I've ever seen. Mm, of course. So, of course, this really sticks in my craw specifically, but when you look at some of the other small business loans that were given, the Washington Times got a million dollars. The Washington Times, oh. a right-wing <laughs> propaganda outlet that Amazing. is largely funded by the Korean Unification Church already. Why did they need a million dollars? And the Ayn Rand Institute gets a million dollars? What, to spread more libertarian propaganda around the country? I mean, it's absurd. Yeah, well, you know, Reuters had a story that came out um, that these family offices, you know, the offices that manage the money for these billionaires have so much money, they got to employ people. Um, some of them, like the Rothschilds, even, I think I'm not even pronouncing that correctly, like they were getting a PPP loan, PPP loan, whatever many P's it is, uh, for like to keep eight employees on. I'm just like, this is like the one of the richest families on earth. They can liquidate less than a tenth of a percent of probably what they own and easily pay these people. I mean, the whole thing is, is I mean, you talk about Betsy DeVos. This is how you get five yachts, ultimately, at the end of the day. People are like, how do you have five yachts? Like these billionaires, and they're just on a smash and grab rate. Like whether it's, you know, paying people poverty wages, robbing them of their wages, manipulating the government, going to these tax shelters. Like at the end of the day, like the elites, whether they call themselves Democrats or Republicans or whatever they call themselves, nothing, all of them. Like it's just they're they're almost at this stage in the game. Honestly, they're almost they're, they're essentially parasitic on the economy. Um, you know, the role they play, I think, in the type of system they promote with the level of just like unbelievable just callous inequality. Like to say you would pay more rather than less for healthcare over time, which is the entire, the position of really the entire sort of ruling class of America on um, both parties, as we see in the election, uh, to just completely rule it out and say you would pay more rather than less just to not concede the point that the government should provide healthcare for narrow ideological reasons. And you think about the hundreds, I, I forget the number that Bernie Sanders used, the hundreds of thousands of people, you know, who are essentially dying because they don't have access to healthcare, they can't afford it every single year. And you just think of the callousness that really takes to have to hold that position. I mean, like it'd be one thing if there was a real debate over whether you could afford it. But since it's completely fake, the idea that you can't afford it, I mean it's 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 honestly, I think we don't actually talk enough. And because of like the media celebrity complex we almost give people too much of a benefit of the doubt, in my opinion, these rich people um, that like they're they're basically decent or something. I don't know. To me, I don't know how you could be propping something up like this and say like, yeah, you know, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm for helping people. It's absurd. 
Totally agree with you there. Uh, But I wanted to shift the subject over to what's happening right now with Black Lives Matter. There's so many angles to it uh, to break down and to pick apart. So many different debates, a lot of them very disingenuous happening about it, even on the left, sadly. Um, But I wanted to get this out of the way first because I think it's really important. I've done a couple of podcasts already since the resurgence of this Black Lives Matter movement with two different guests now, uh, Leslie Lee and Danny Haifong. On both podcasts, um, we address the whole concept of this quasi-corporate solidarity with BLM and the aspects of what that actually means. And, and we made an attempt to separate what is clearly the cynical and disingenuous nature of these corporations doing this with the reality of why this movement is still extremely important. And Eugene, I don't even know if we succeeded in really carrying that message across to people on these podcasts, but I still see a problem in the left. You know, I, obviously racism and issues about, you know, debates about racism are a huge problem on the right. I mean, but I see a problem on the left still that's troublesome where especially leftists who are more, more focused on anti-imperialism and war, those people are out there sort of saying that the BLM movement as it exists now should be rejected because you know, they'll say things like, there is no such thing as a revolution sponsored by Google or sponsored by Amazon. And I guess technically that statement in and of itself is true. They'd be right. But I feel like they're kind of completely missing the point and finding ways to opt out of the movement sort of disingenuously. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, I could completely understand why people are seeing things like Chase Bank putting Black Lives Matter on their front page is absolutely disingenuous, uh, extremely cynical, and uh, shouldn't be taken seriously. But on the other hand, you know, some of these corporations, and I'm not at all defending corporations or corporate culture here but some of these corporations do have young people in them i'm sure some of these people genuinely in their hearts want to have solidarity with the black lives matter movement a lot of these younger people in these companies it's not all cynicism so we have to separate i think this idea of fake corporate solidarity which i think in some ways kind of reeks of fear which we'll talk about a little later with the actual real importance of this movement and how seriously it should be taken by people on the left. I, I, I want to know if you've experienced this, if you've encountered this, and what your response to it is. Yeah. No, I, 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 have, I have encountered that. And, I mean, my, my first thing, as I would say, is I don't think, like, anybody, like, it's not sponsored by Google. I mean, like, when you go out on the streets and you're talking to people, um, like, Google, Facebook, Nike, they have no presence on the ground other than, like, their phones, their apps, their shoes, like, you know, consumer society. And, like, most people, I, I guarantee you, if you go to, like, any protest or have been at any of the protests, you know, you can certainly ask yourself, I guess, if you've been there, but and ask people, like, do you think this is sincere? I think most people understand they're doing this because they feel like they have to, because they don't want people to boycott them. They don't want to be associated with the idea that they're racist. And the idea that like, because a system is reacting to you, that it it somehow sponsors you or is like determining the sort of 
nature of this movement, I think is is just I mean, it's off base and there's really there's really nothing to suggest it. And the history of social movements. And this is why I think a lot of, you know, I think there are people who maybe hold that view sincerely. But I've, I've always felt a lot of that view is kind of bad faith, because I think the history of protest movements show any mass movement of any nature that starts to sort of shake society immediately like the pillars of stability of that society attempt to appeal to it and co-opt it like that's that's the name of the game like people who are in power are not gonna like just you know allow themselves to be politically outflanked or um if not outflanked defrocked in the face of the you know for all their complete impotence in the face of the the world and i think ultimately you know, it's something that has to be addressed and something that has to be overcome and something that has to be recognized that these people also have agents that they are trying to, even if it's not from the corporations directly, but through, you know, the, the you know, really the ultimate agency of nonprofit funding, um, but also to some degree, you know, government grants and sponsorship. Not that those things are bad in and of themselves per se in every circumstance, but that they are an avenue by which there will be people sent in to disorganize the movement. But like, that's always true too. Like every social movement of any success and certainly every revolution, people try to co-opt it, people infiltrate it, people, you know, repress it brutally, people go to jail, they die. Um, You know, these are all like sort of, elements of the struggle. And I think the question is, is, is it, does something have to be chemically pure? Like, are you just going to call something forth or is one day the chemical pure radical mass movement you want to see just going to emerge on the horizon? I don't think it really happens like that either. I mean, I think that consciousness and you know what, you know, there've been a lot of police killings and not movements this big, you know what I mean? Um, Just like every war doesn't bring up a big anti-war movement necessarily. And I think there's a lot of reasons why consciousness is what it is and why people take action and the same thing can seem worse in different contexts for broad masses of people. And if millions of people are coming onto the streets promoting a profoundly positive, like let's strip away all the like this slogan, that slogan. In its essence, a profoundly positive idea um, that people shouldn't just get randomly gunned down on the street for nothing because they happen to be black, or I mean, certainly anyone, but you know, disproportionately black and Native American for that matter. Um, and that ultimately, like, rather than focus on like the repressive forces of the state, we should focus on housing everybody, feeding everybody, giving everyone something meaningful, you know, to do every day in terms of education and work that benefits all of us, uh, you know, try to improve society as much as possible and not live in like a dog eat dog profit society. I mean, I would say like, by and large, that seems pretty good to me. And I think that there's a lot of reasons why you could hate on it. But if there's huge millions of people really rallying to this, is it better to sort of be in the mix and try to promote your views amongst people who are moving towards a a goal that I think a lot of people, as you said, really claim to be moving towards? Or are you just going to like stand on the side um, and, you know, throw shade at it or whatever and, you know, complain? I don't know. To me, that doesn't really sound like how history works or how you get things done. And it also sounds like profoundly arrogant. So maybe I'm not being 100% fair to people, but I do think there's way too much like glib, dumb online especially like oh well if it's you know google or whatever and and, you know honestly it's other and and similar things like 
oh, I saw a Black Lives Matter protest and it was like mainly white people. Well, I mean, I don't know. I'm actually for white people being against racism as a black person in America. I'm trying to eliminate racism. Like, so if in some all white town, there's like, th- or even not, even in New York City, if there's like 3,000, 30,000 white people who are down to go to jail and get arrested and like raise some hell because, you know, they're against racism. I would say that's progress, not a negativity um, in terms of, of where we're at. So I think a lot of it just has to do with how you view social movements. Is it something you're just sort of commentating on or is it something that you really want to be a part of and change? And in that case, I think, um, you know, you you look for 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 moments of, of, of creativity in spontaneity when people just rise up like this. Um, in a lot of different ways, with a lot of different views, some good, some bad, some in the middle. Um, but generally, uh, that's kind of my response to that, that criticism. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you're right that a lot of it is in bad faith and, you know, some of these people may have like slightly clever talking points, you know, maybe not, it, they're not that effective, but they'll act like, you know, they'll say things like, what about black lives in Libya acting like, you know, these people don't care about foreign policy or they'll say things like that, you know, BLM is part of the Democratic Party. It's part of, you know, George Soros. Um, and I, I just I, yeah. I think ultimately people are always going to find an excuse to opt out of these sort of racial solidarity movements. And I do think a, yeah. the majority of it is bad faith. But and then I also think um, that. You know, and it, it, maybe these people don't see it as bad faith because some of them are very smart and very intellectual people, and some of them I actually admire as writers um, that I've been following for a long time. Will take this stance where they'll conflate this sort of corporate, you know, BLM virtue signaling. I, I hate using that word, but I don't know how else to describe yeah, it. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. They'll conflate that with the actual protest movement, and they'll sort of and and I I think they're two completely different issues because it's like yeah, corporations who don't want to actually solve their diversity problem and hire people of color, um, they will, you know, just try to do this all through PR manipulation, you know, acting like they have solidarity, acting like, you know, all they have to do is hire some kind of, uh, you know, like a, like a racial sensitivity coach, like the author of white fragility to their company to, to, you know, give, give team, team (laughs) meetings or whatever. That's what corporations do. That's a whole, and also the idea that corporations maybe could fire or you could lose your employment because of something that you know could create a shitstorm for that corporation. That's like a whole. I feel like this is a totally separate issue, and that's when you. I, I feel like um, the whole idea of cancel culture. Those kinds of people sort of use that concept to make it apply to everything. When it, I, I it, to me, it really only specifically applies to that 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 corporate world and and i don't even you know i don't even know if i would agree with him in terms of the way it applies to the corporate world but what do you have to say to just that idea that now everybody is acting like not everybody in fairness but a lot of people are acting like the resurgence of black lives matter has also created a resurgence in you know this quote unquote authoritarian thought we are not allowed to disagree with black lives matter and you're going to get canceled and is that just also just an equal and opposite reaction? Because I feel like we're all, we'll always see that kind of pushback. But it, it, I don't know, it's, it's coming from the intellectual class, so it's more yeah. bothersome to me this time. No, I, I think you're right. And I think it's natural. And I mean, it, you know, to some degree, it reminds me of the nature of the neoconservative movement, um, you know, which initially the intellectual sort of lodestar of that, a good chunk of it 
were, um, you know, intellectuals who were uncomfortable by the radical turn of the Black Liberation Movement post-1965. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, the whole sort of what Irving Kristol, you know, uh, a conservative is just a liberal mug by reality. You know, even the phrase and like the connotation, especially at the time he used it of mugged, um, you know, is so obviously and so racially oh, charged. Yeah. Um, but we don't have to go into that. But I think, you know, to me, I'm not surprised because my first question I was asked is like, well, like, who was really even like getting canceled over this? Like, certainly people are getting roasted on the Internet and many people are putting forward opinions that people don't consider popular. Um, I, I mean, but I just don't know of any. I mean, you know, you look at this Harper's letter, you look at the the thing that happened in the New York Times, people are mad about it. But Tom Cotton still got in there. Barry Weiss, Brett Stevens. Uh, are working in there uh, consistently. You know, the the Washington Post, the same thing. Uh, you know, you've got Fox News, all these big news channels. I mean, I, it just seems to me like all, by and large, the like elite opinion network of America is not engaged in any sort of like, you know, process by which uh, these views are being suppressed. It seems like what people are really upset about is, is that on Twitter, they're getting roasted. And that they're saying things and people are coming at them aggressively because they don't agree. And many of them are also people who they like. And they feel like, oh, well, now I'm being pushed out of the club because you don't agree with me. And I mean, I, you know, what that reflects, I don't know. I mean, Twitter is, I think, you know, very, especially to journalists, I think the whole world, um, mainstream journalists, and maybe more sort of important in their social world. Not that I'm not on Twitter, not that it's not important, but I don't know how much you know, they're, they're really being affected by this online criticism. But I mean, I hate to trivialize it like that, but that is kind of how it seems to me. I mean, for a bunch of people who are all elite writers, I hate to harp on the Harper's letter, no pun intended, but like for all these people who are super elite writers with total open access to all elite institutions and one of America's oldest, most elite intellectual magazines to put out a letter, like the intellectual space is closing. is like, what are you even talking about? I mean, you got Matt Tybee. I don't even know what he's talking about. I haven't even read most of his stuff about this because I like him. I just don't want to lose respect for him. But like you're in Rolling Stone. Like what are you even saying? You're getting canceled. Glenn Greenwald, you have millions of people following you. Um, you like have a billionaire paying for you to have. I mean, it just I don't understand the reality that these people are living in first and foremost. And maybe I'm getting a little worked up, but like I just feel like first things first, like laying the foundation for the argument, it feels so weak to me because people are like so upset that oh, well, all of a sudden, if you express a contrary opinion about, you know, the movement for black lives or trans rights or whatever, you're just getting canceled left and right. And I'm just like, what? Are people are getting angry. You're getting in big arguments. Some people are refusing to work with you. But like, I don't know that the fact that this is some wide scale, you know, suppression to me seems unbelievable. But I guess that leads me to my second point, which is, and to speak to your point about equal and opposite reaction. I mean, I think the reality of this situation is that you know, the nature of the oppression of black people in America, which has been going on for so long and is so consistent and so rooted into like so much of our culture, like this is sort of a cultural revolution. And it's at the same time where, you know, I, I think maybe more than in history, a lot of some of the most like basic categories we organize ourselves around as people like gender are uh, and sexual orientation, at least, you know, what was previously considered acceptable, you know, are changing rapidly. And there's a lot of new ideas and a lot of people who have been marginalized 
who, you know, do not want to be marginalized any longer and are not putting that together. I think to some people that's not that threatening and they can separate it and say like, well, look, there's some things I agree with maybe, some things I don't, maybe I agree with all of it, but like broadly it's good, you know, it is what it is. Um, I think there are other people who are feeling that their views, their lifestyle, I don't know what it is. I don't know a lot of these people personally, but something in their core, I think, is affected by this. And I think this happens with all big cultural shifts that people you don't expect, um, you know, will voice opinions that can be surprising because I, I think it's it's easy to argue dispassionately. But I think sort of cultural, social touchstones, um, you know, bring out sort of only sort of not only, but bring out a lot of emotional responses and you learn a lot about people. But it's hard. I mean, just since there doesn't seem to me to even really be the problem in the first place, that's what leads me to the second piece, because what could what could even make you so excised about this? Like if I had a column in The New York Times or a billionaire paying for me to have a giant media platform with like dozens of people working for me, I just like wouldn't even be concerned about this. I wouldn't even be concerned about people criticizing me. I mean, I'd have a huge microphone. And to me, it speaks to the elite nature of a lot of these people that like, they, that they don't really represent that, you know? And like, what is, what is cancel culture really? Like people are upset that the newspaper people, uh, that news, that people in media organizations are organizing to say they shouldn't do the Tom Cotton thing. They shouldn't do this. Well, I mean, okay. But also what is this coming concomitantly with? That is the rise of workplaces, unionized workplaces in the media and workers having a collective voice because they can't just get fired. Like to me, that's cancel culture. You know, you work in a newsroom where you can't get fired and then you complain about an editorial and an editorial meeting in the morning. And they say, well, then get the fuck out of here. You know, um, like that's cancel culture. Someone who doesn't have a lot of power, who people don't know who they are, um, you know, people all around this country in at will employment who could lose their job at any time. You know, a woman getting sexually harassed at McDonald's who can't say anything because she's got two kids at home. And that's the only job. And some asshole manager is going to fire her if she speaks up. That's cancel culture. Someone telling like Barry Weiss, you know, oh, you're a terrible human being on Twitter. Like, get out of here. You know what I mean? And, and I think it's it's actually great. I don't care whether I, I fully agree with everything in the way they framed it. I like what those New York Times people were doing because why shouldn't journalists have a voice in what's published in their newspaper? Why shouldn't workers at an institution have democracy in their workplace? Um, you know, why should they be forced to adhere to some elite standard of like, quote unquote, free speech that doesn't exist. There's no legal right to publish in any particular publication. And, and, and to me, it's just enforce, enforcing an elite code of conduct or trying to enforce an elite code of conduct that protects more conservative views um, and to impute power upon those who really don't have anything. I mean, like even the most powerful people in the broader Black Lives Matter sphere probably could not get Barry Weiss fired from the New York Times. <laughs> no, you're... You're absolutely right. And I think it just it just ties back to this whole concept that I think has been sort of a problem in the left for a while. And I will even acknowledge that maybe even I fell prey to it uh, several years ago, if you would have had a conversation with me, where I thought that identity politics was becoming a barrier for some of these other things to sort of become, you know, very serious issues for people. Um, and now I, I realize that that is it is a cop out to to just be like yeah we should not you know we shouldn't make this about identity politics because essentially what you're saying is you're worried that it'll make certain people too uncomfortable and it's like well why are you know why is identity politics making those people uncomfortable that should be and and how much do you actually want to be concerned about worrying about 
those people's comfort because they got to change eventually. I mean, that's the, I think that's really what the, right. at, at the root of this. They're not, you're just appealing to like a, a nonsensical, just frozen in this time period. Oh, no, no, let, let's just leave things the same so that these people, you know, stay comfortable. They're going to get turned off, you know, if we talk about. Right, right. And, and it's, to me, it's also patronizing. And it's sort of like, look, from my point of view, if you want to convince people of your point of view, you got to be authentic. So if you're going to go to people with opposite views and be like, look, I basically agree with you on all this. I'm like not going to say anything at all. You're never going to get anywhere because as soon as something comes up, it's all going to break apart. I mean, obviously within reason, but it seems like you don't want to hide like who you are, your politics, how you feel. Because I agree with you 100%. Like the issue isn't, I mean, I think like identity politics almost has become such a meme. You know, like I have a lot of disagreements with many things that I would sort of phrase under identity politics. Yeah, same. But I've always sort of, I've always sort of hated that, started to hate the meme because like the issue isn't so much identity per se, it's like stripping it from all context. Yeah. Um, and not really sort of looking in like the reality of, 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 why was racism really brought to the fore in the context of white supremacy in America? You know, what has its main function been by and large? And when you see that, you know, the understanding of the, the importance of class in sort of framing that narrative, um, framing and structuring it, you could argue in some ways, maybe framing more and as, as much as structuring. But, um, you know, then I think uh, you can see that I, my own view is, you know, I think that they're amongst sort of, the broad, poor, and working class people of all quote-unquote races have more in common than they do with ultra-rich billionaires. And that whatever their differences are, they can gain much more even by working those differences out at, you know, a little bit to get someone like Bernie Sanders elected or something like that, um, but could do much, much more. But you can't be fake. It's not about having a, homo a homogeneity of identities. It's about having a diversity of identities that people can respect and having some just like baseline principles about how people treat people um, and what's right and what's wrong. And I think the fact that that's been suppressed for so long in so many different ways is what makes it so explosive when it comes out. Because, you know, it, it's, it's for so long people are marginalized, pushed to the side, told these concerns don't matter. And then finally, when it breaks out into the open, you know, it's bound to be a little messy. And, and it makes sense to me that it makes some people uncomfortable. But that's the thing, especially if you're a political analyst, to be able to grasp the essence of it. And so to immediately jump to the like, oh, this is, the, you know, it's bringing in this whole new thing of cancel culture, when like, quite frankly, a lot of people don't even know fully what that is. They're not, you know, at least on Twitter, they may be on Facebook, but it's, you know, it's vague to them. It's not how people, the, I mean, the you look at the polling about Black Lives Matter that has come from this movement, these massive shifts among white people, but also among black people and everyone in favor, more even more so, um, in every single way over a handful of weeks. Like, I, I just don't think those people are, you know, sitting back and, you know, thinking to themselves, you know, oh, wow, like this is, I, I don't even know, like this is like, this is such a, a, a great moment for, I, I don't even know, like destroying the cultural, I don't know. It, it's, you know what I mean? I don't know. It's like people are thinking about it as if there's some major level of intolerance because they don't like some people's views that they see that they deem to be leaders or the mob mentality online. But these tens of millions of people, I think they're just thinking like, yeah, we need to end racism. We need to deal with this issue of racism and policing. We need to 
you know, prioritize social programs and improving people's lives. And, you know, the fact that you can't grasp that essence and kind of critique what you want to critique you know, without throwing out the baby with the bathwater, to me is what, again, speaks to why I feel like there must be some sort of secondary motivation. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it just, just something to me just feels like, you know, some people have taken it so far and some you expect because they're like right wing idiots, the Barry Weisses of the world. But some of them, you know, are, are people I respect and I like their work. And, and it's hard to understand why they're so hung up on this framing that seems deeply problematic and then prevents you from having real conversations about you know, identity, nationality, ethnicity, class, and how all those things have worked in history, how they're playing out now, and, and how that relates to what we need to do to change things. That argument just gets thrown out the window because, you know, everything is is diverted. No, you're absolutely right. And I think a lot of those arguments we're seeing play out, it's just like, it's sort of reacting to these low-hanging fruit, MSNBC. They go after the people that I think are sort of in that realm of identity politics that that we would maybe agree are not helpful you know for the movement yeah weapon weaponized for an elite for sure basically. yeah yeah <laughs> i wanted to talk to you about this you know this completely inseparable nature of the way policing is done in this country and white supremacy and i think just in the same way that the pandemic situation here in the united states totally laid bare for not just americans to see but the rest of the world to see is that we're kind of a failed state. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to see America after the situation as a country that has their shit together in terms of taking care of its own people. So this situation, similarly, George Floyd's death, I think similarly, you know, kind of laid bare to people that there is this very visible problem that still exists, very ugly problem of systematic baked in white supremacy that goes back hundreds of years and and maybe it's most visible when people see it in the form of police brutality and police you know murdering uh, a black man like george floyd on camera so and i'm sure you probably don't have these annoying conversations very often but i see them online in comment <laughs> sections where you know a lot of conservatives will run with this myth that systematic racism ended with the civil rights act being passed like that's their right. historical revisionism. You know, they'll maybe address the drug war in some scattered ways to sound clever and like they're hip to things, but you know, that's their narrative essentially. But we know that that's not true. But I mean, this goes back for a long time. You know, if someone told that to you, how would you explain to them that you know, white supremacy and policing are completely interlinked in this country and systematic racism in the form of law enforcement continued to be a huge problem like up until yeah you know now it's still a problem so it didn't right. so like what would you say to those kinds of people yeah well i mean i think to start slightly more broadly with the broader question of systemic racism i mean the first thing i would say to people and that i have said to people is you know when you really look at the reality um you know in every single state and basically every single place at all times whether low or high the black unemployment rate is two times the unemployment rate of whites. You look at so many of the diseases in this country, you know, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, uh, and you see many disparities in terms of the black population, in terms of, you know, vis-a-vis -vis other populations, in terms of who's affected. You've obviously seen it in the context of COVID-19. Black people are disproportionately imprisoned, disproportionately killed by the police, disproportionately stopped by the police. Um, 
I, I think that when you look at the overall perception of, you know, wealth, educational attainment, uh, and so on and so forth, I mean, how is it possible there's no systemic uh, racism in this country, and it seems like in almost every single social indicator and category, when you break it down by race, then more or less black people seem to be disproportionately doing wor worse um, in almost every single one of them. Now, I mean, there's two answers for that. I mean, one is that it just, there just isn't systemic racism and it's just random. Um, I think the other answer is that Black people are to blame for all of their own problems, which is at the root of conservative ideology. Um, and that at the end of the day, like, well, you know what? If you disproportionately have diabetes, it's because too many black people are eating too much junk food and so on and so forth. Totally abstracted from the idea of, of food deserts, um, you know, the impact of advertising. I mean, when you're in a food desert and there's no fresh food anywhere close to you and every single store that you are just a consumer, you don't own or control is filled with things that are terrible for you, but coincidentally enough, happen to be sold at just a low enough price for you to buy them. You know, that's an interesting context since those are conscious decisions about where grocery stores go and what's people stocked, even who owns businesses um, and has access to capital. So at the end of the day, um, you know, I think that, that those are the, really the two choices. And I think that obviously conservatives have made that choice and consistently, this the ideology that there is no individual racism, the individual racist, but no systemic racism, and that a huge amount of problems, especially among poor black people, really, are basically the result of poor black people not doing the right thing, not having the right values. It's called the culture of poverty. Um, you know, it's something that's talked about a lot less now because these ideas have been so mainstreamed. But, you know, it was a major issue. And to go to your point about white supremacy, it was a major issue around the rise of whites, uh, around mass incarceration and policing as we know it today. I mean, there's a longer history and a complicated history. But, you know, most importantly, the reality is the system of mass incarceration and the policing system that goes along with it, the so-called prison policing and industrial complex, is 100 percent, 100 percent a reaction to the decision of the ruling class elites in this country to deindustrialize the country, to move factories overseas to make more profits, and also to drastically reduce uh, the government expenditures on poor and working class people in order to lower the tax burden on the wealthy, again, to affect the fact that the profit margins of the corporations and the wealth of wealthy people was not going the way they want it. And really, there was an ideological shift. And I write about this in my book, Shackled and Chain, Mass Incarceration in Capitalist America, which people can Google and find it, Shackled and Chain, Mass Incarceration in Capitalist America. You know, in the sort of quote-unquote Keynesian era, you had sort of an ideology, certainly in the Johnson administration, for instance, the Great Society and, and before in this view amongst many of the academic economists and others that, you know, at the end of the day, the system does have some flaws, just straight up free market capitalism. But, you know, capitalism is the best system and we can just make a few tweaks here and there and we'll make it work. Uh, to move to this system of what we've known to call neoliberal capitalism, it's really preceded by, it has to be because these are bedrock ideas that people have really going back to the New Deal, the experience of the country in World War II and that generation and sort of the role of the government it can play in the 50s um, as well, uh, very deeply rooted. And a lot of that comes with the ideological assault on 
the black community, really, the uh, equation of poverty, even though most people in poverty are white, I think that makes sense, right? The majority of people in the country are white. I don't think I know. Um, but the rate, the strict racialization of poverty, the strict racialization of all social programs that help poor people um, and in the context of welfare queens and the context of crime. And you have these communities that are being stripped bare, completely destroyed, a black population that was never fully brought into the industrial economy, losing any foothold that it has in it. At the same time, these social programs are being cut. So you're blaming the victim for the problems that you're deliberately causing. And then you have all these social problems and you really have to contain them to maintain the stability of the system and contain them in multiple ways. I mean, in some ways, we could talk about some elements of crime going up in the context of that. I talk about it in my book, but there's also things like graffiti that are just defined as crime to lock people up. So some of it is, yeah, you want to contain the social fallout from the destruction of communities. But 20 years ago, these same communities you're destroying were the center of the black power black radical upsurge so you never know which may it might turn and coincidentally you already have a law and order system that has been growing brought in by nixon as a deliberate strategy to blunt the black liberation movement the, the nixon administration officials have written this down so we know this um and told about it later as an actual strategy to identify black radicalism with crime to discredit the Black Panthers, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers and other groups like that, that were inspiring many people, many non-black people to rise up, um, you know, as well in their own circumstances. In the 67 Detroit uprising, more white people were arrested for being snipers, killing cops than black people. Interesting note, um, the majority of the people involved in the event were black, but you can see the effect it had on this white population that was also deeply oppressed, um, you know, from the point of view of, of the work conditions and the, the community. So I say all that to say that, I mean, it's a direct, the, the direct result of mass incarceration and policing being from here uh, you know, speaks to this issue of exactly what you're saying of there being no systematic racism. This is the ideological underpinning, there being no systematic racism, of a, syst a system designed on purpose to address um, the social fallout of the destruction of communities and to assist in the, uh, the, the criminalization of a population so that you could sort of attach so, you know, many white people benefit from Medicaid. If you make it seem like Medicaid is for poor black people and it's like lazy, poor, ignorant, violent black people is the message you're getting, then, you know, it's going to make it easier to promote a politics that's against Medicaid. Um, and I think, you know, that again, this is well documented that this is a big part of the strategy of the Republicans and the Nixon administration on. Um, it's been said over and over again. It's been documented secretly in public, whatever. Um uh, and I think we know this to be the case, that this is these, these two things are directly related. And so when you look at the reality that says there is clearly systemic racism, um, and then you look at the consequences of when a lot of these arguments started to come to the fore, not the consequences, the time a lot of these arguments come to the fore, you start to see these two things matching up. And, and I'll just argue, I think it's very important to understand this racialization of crime, because from the very beginning, you, you know, of the sort of modern system of prisons and policing, especially as we know it, this idea of preventative policing, essentially, you know, you sort of predefine who you believe to be criminal, right? Because to say you can prevent something says you have to know who's predisposed to do it. And I think just look at something like this, wage theft. So bosses stealing, 
You're supposed to get paid. Your boss steals the money from you. Wage theft is huge. There's actually more wage theft in the United States than every other form of theft or like robbery combined in wow. America. But the police don't even investigate wage theft. It's mostly used as a civil crime. Uh, almost no one ever goes to jail for it. You just, in fact, most companies that commit a lot of wage theft don't even care because their attitude is the fines are just the cost of doing business to steal people's wages. Um, but yeah, more than every other form of theft and robbery, anything wage theft bigger than all of that, but it's not considered a crime. But obviously if you, you know, knew about this and it was pursued as aggressively as they would pursue someone who stole $500 from a convenience store, um, you know, you might think differently about what crime is and who criminals are and so on and so forth. So crime is, is as much socially constructed as quote unquote real. Um, and I think we often lose sight of that too. Like there are a lot of challenges in many poor working class communities of all types. Um, and many of them fall under the nature of hurt people, hurt people. And there is a lot of people who do become victims, unfortunately, but a lot of people who do things are victims. Like the people who are most likely to do a killing, say in the South side of Chicago, are the most likely people to be killed. And so I, we don't really think about it like that. And we don't think about sort of the, the nature of the compounding impacts of the devastation of these communities, the complete abandonment by any authority in the context of, uh, you know, unlimited weaponry and a culture that says do whatever you can to get rich and treat people terribly, um, you know, from the top on down. And I, and, and, you know, I, I think, I don't know. I just think that there's a lot of elements to it. I'm rambling a little bit now that all sort of speak to this overall attitude that, you know, there's a context for what's happening in every community um, that is hurting. And I think all of that is capitalism. I think policing and prisons are obviously just like holding a lid on a boiling pot ultimately, and that's by design. And again, when you look at the context of it, it seems to be deeply embedded in a system where the outcomes for black people are disproportionately worse in almost every social indicator. I like how you brought up what the Nixon administration was known to have done, um, because John Ehrlichman, he admits it uh, 100%. The anti-war left and black people were the two enemies of the Nixon White House. Yeah, this is an actual quote from him. He says, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous that this is a real quote. I verified it. It's completely a real quote from him. You wrote this book about you know the history of, of policing go into the Nixon administration specifically about exactly what they did and how they targeted and racialized policing. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, you know, it's very interesting. And there's, it, there's so much that I wish was more known. Um, you know, the Nixon administration, one of the things that I think they're very notable for is really sort of institutionalizing this massive federal support for state and local law enforcement. You know, one of the contexts that they put in this Law Enforcement Administration Act, which brought billions of dollars to police, and it was all under the context that there's all these black radicals trying to overthrow the government, excuse me, and then there's also these violent criminals that they're in league with, because the way the Nixon administration used to put it, and the way they would subtly, not subtly, but one of their more maybe subtle arguments, because they were so out there sometimes, was basically that, um, 
you know, the Black Panthers and other groups like that by brazenly breaking the law and challenging authority created a climate by which crime could grow. And so that, that, that was the sort of connection between them. And that ultimately, you know, the existence of these well-armed radicals and criminals um, had outgunned the local police and they needed a lot of federal support. And, you know, they put it in, they, they gave billions of dollars. And, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, boondoggles all over the place, but certainly a big move for a lot of sort of the modern militarization of the police, not fully, but for it to start um, at that time. That's when the SWAT teams are coming together. Um, originally starting in LA, same thing, right? Like SWAT teams very heavily centered on the idea of challenging the black radical movement in this country. And, you know, very much found their initial, the Black Panther raid on, uh, the raid on the Black Panther office, famous one in 1969 in Los Angeles, for instance. But uh, you know, I just want to stop you there. That was one of the first times um, that a SWAT team was ever captured on film, right? Yes. It, it's. I don't have this confirmed. I believe it may have been the first time a SWAT team was ever fully called out. Um, and, and it might have been, I think, their first real mission. I don't have that confirmed, but it was up there. And it was definitely one of the first times it was out there. And, and, when it, and the whole reason for bringing this together was exactly that, right? And you know, it morphed later on. Now most SWAT teams are called out for like drug warrants and things like that. But ultimately it was very rooted in this, this same idea that this radical black movement was dangerous in and of itself because these people were violent, terroristic communists. Um, but that it also inspired this growth of lawlessness, which, you know, some of it was coming. You had a lot of things happening. I mean, one, the heroin boom. And, you know, I think it's always very interesting to note in this country that, you know, most major drug crises happen around the same time as economic crises. And heroin starts to explode as the sort of post-war boom of America starts to wane. Yeah. The Vietnam War, which sends back a lot of people who, you know, are very hurt by what took place there and looking for a refuge. Uh, you know, the expansion and growth of international trade and commerce certainly made it possible to ship larger amounts of drugs, um, containerization of shipping and things like that, that played a role. And the fact that most of the heroin was being grown um, by, you know, allies of the CIA. And so there was not going to be a major, um, you know, push to stop them. I, I, one of the best books I've ever read, and I think people should read it, it's called um, The Politics of Heroin by a guy named Alfred McCoy. And he lays out very clearly how, you know, the, the anti-Chinese, um, well, you know, they're Chinese themselves, but the nationalist, you know, KMT forces, anti-communist Chinese, um, you know, played a big role in this. Uh, many of the right wing, you know, Vietnamese who were blocking with the United States. You have, you have to read the book. I'm just scratching the surface. It's actually unbelievable um, the depth of the involvement. But similar to, uh, you know, Afghanistan in the 80s, certainly similar to um, what we've seen in parts of Latin America and other parts of the world today. Um, you know, many uh, of these, you know, right-wing illicit groups and regimes are using the drug trade to get rich. Um, so that means that there's not going to be a big push on the supply end to really try to shut it down. So you put all those factors together and you get, you know, a, a pretty heady brew. And, you know, it's been well-documented in a number of very good books that, um, you know, even in many of these oppressed communities themselves, people were very concerned about what they thought was, you know, an increasing danger in their community, increasing um, destruction. And, you know, some people wanted tougher laws. I mean, the Rockefeller drug laws, for sure, had a lot of groundswell um, in the black community. Not, you know, everyone, but certainly it's not as if it was just some 
you know, random thing that was created and imposed. I mean, there were real social problems. So you have to little, dig a little bit deeper for sort of the broader framing, which is, you know, why are these things happening? Like, why is it that the post-war boom is waning? Why is it that jobs are being moved out? Why is it that there's a need for people to attack social programs that don't cost that much to decrease the tax burden on the super wealthy? Why would people take up guns and challenge the government out of some of the worst communities like in, in the native reservations and the ghettos of America? I mean, you know, the, all these sort of basic questions about what's happening, um, you know, the context I just gave in terms of heroin, uh, you know, all that can can easily get lost, I think, in, you know, sort of the, the homogenized kind of right wing narrative that we have. Uh, today, but I think it's an important understanding of the Nixon administration's role in really setting the stage for this by laying the ground ideologically, using sort of the taint of crime as another one of its counterinsurgency tactics against the radical movement. Um, I think institutionalizing massive federal support for policing in a way that had not yet really been done, which also helped, you know, the initial growth of militarized policing. And yeah, the Reagan administration is, of course, the culmination of the counter-revolution um, that I'm talking about here, this shift to the right, to this sort of neoliberal form of capitalism. That's the firing gun. And one of the first things they did, of course, was really take the ideas of mass incarceration. The attorney general does a report. One of the first things he does saying that the number one thing we need is more prison beds in America. Now, you know, it really been some Democrats, including Joe Biden, even Ted Kennedy, who had really been on the cutting edge in the mid 70s of pushing tougher penalties for drugs. Uh, explicitly. And, you know, they were unable to get some of the things like mandatory sentencing in really until the Reagan era. And it was the war on drugs that more or less created the context. Because again, you have economic devastation in a lot of communities, you have social problems that are coming down, um, you have not a lot of options for people and a callous government. And in the context of that, people are looking for solace, crack becomes an issue. Um, and it starts to create an underground economy that has a lot of violence associated with it. And that then becomes an excuse to establish this war on drugs to fuel the, you know, the boom uh, to some degree, not just the war on drugs as in nonviolent drug possession, but, you know, a lot of murders, robberies, whatever, also related to this broader issue. That's why there's a lot of crossover sentences. And a big feature of this time is if you commit a robbery in a drug deal, it's worse. You know what I mean? Or if you're caught with drugs and guns, the two things combine to make it a worse sentence. And all these attempts to sort of criminalize the broader sort of black and gray market that sprang up around this illicit economy in the context of, again, no economic opportunity being given to these communities. And uh, the Reagan administration, you know, you have, and not just Reagan administration, all of Congress, including the Democrats, you have things like the, the 100 to 1 crack cocaine disparity, which comes in in 1986 and is obviously maybe one of the most infamous elements of the war on drugs. And when you really look at it, it comes, you know, the so-called after the death of Lynn Bias, famous basketball player. But Lynn, Lynn Bias died of about 80 percent um, pure powder cocaine. Um, now, I'm not, you know, purporting to be a pharmacologist, but I you know, was born at night, but not last night, like 80% pure powder cocaine is not something you buy on the street. Um, you know, that's the something that you get when you're about to be one of the biggest people in the NBA and big time drug dealers want to hang out with you. That's a, a, a it's a, tr it was a tragic situation, but it had nothing to do with the crack cocaine trade. Yet it's used somehow to put people selling small amounts of crack, a hundred to one, you need a hundred times more cocaine to go to jail for the same amount as one gram of crack um like one gram of crack same amount as a hundred grams of coke and 
somehow, you know, that's supposed to be related to the death of this basketball player who died from powder cocaine. So you can see the cynicism of it. Um, you can see the obvious reality that, you know, criminalization is not a way to deal with this. There are other issues that are also at play. The deinstitutionalization movement, of course, around mental health, which had many very positive aspects because these so-called mental health institutions, many of them were just horror shows. Um, but, you know, we didn't build out a mental health infrastructure. So ultimately, we just eviscerated the one that existed, which was terrible. And then, you know, the government in the same point, you know, just chose not to do anything to address mental illness. And, um, you know, that's a big issue. I mean, when you look at the actual breakdown of who's in prison, you know, many people with mental illnesses of different types, many people with substance abuse issues, um, you know, it's not what it's made out to be. And I don't mean that to make it out like prisoners are all like, you know, fucked up, sad, broken people. Many of the greatest people I know either are prisoners or, or have been prisoners. I'm just saying, you know, people, it's not like they're these evil people. Yes, there are people who have done very bad things and victimized people in a way they shouldn't be. But a lot of times when you look at their story, you realize, you know, they were victimized and kind of the worst elements of, of our society that our society throws at human beings. Like that's who ends up in prison. The people who've gotten the worst brunt, like kind of regardless of what race, by and large, the hardcore people in prison are people who've had the worst of our society thrown at them. Um, and, you know, stepped across an imaginary line, that's bullshit, or stepped across a line that, you know, people really shouldn't cross. Um, and I'm not saying it's right, but I think we have to understand the context of it if we want to address it. Like the only thing we look at and say we can never do anything about is crime because people believe, well, everyone's just naturally going to kill people, rape people, rob people or whatever. I don't actually believe that's true. I think everything has a reason. Um, everything exists for a reason. Even when people say stuff like, oh, well, they were just crazy. Like, Okay, well, yeah, that like that's a reason. Like, there's a reason why everyone is experiencing everything, and we have to really be willing to get to the roots. The police do nothing to solve crimes. There's been a 20-year drop in violent crime. No one knows exactly why. There's a lot of competing theories, but no one credible really thinks mass incarceration had anything to do with that. You know, the police barely solve any crimes. Um, first and foremost, like, I mean, it's a total myth that we have this like working system that's like keeping people safe, which is totally fake. Um, and, and I think it's just important to recognize that unless we deal with the root issues here, you know, you can contain it as much as you want, but ultimately um, you're not gonna make a big difference until you really address the root causes of why these things are happening. I mean, you said so many good things there. That's part of why I wanted to talk to you is to get to some of these root causes. And I feel like there's a whole one side of it we can just look at where this sort of incremental increase in militarized police and and there's so many ways you can look at that like a lot of people will say well it's just because of the body cameras and how many cameras are around these days that we think police are becoming more violent but there is a pronounced you know incremental increase in the way that police police and the way that they behave and and I think at this point you know if you poll I don't even know if they've done polls like this but I would imagine if you polled people now and ask them questions like, would you feel safe calling the police if you had a mentally ill child that was having a episode? Um, would you feel safe calling the police if your dog escaped, you know, and was not on a leash? Uh, like th th those kinds of things. And I think it's almost, it's, I, I think people who are even like white people would, a lot of them would probably say no. And maybe like 20 or 30 right. years ago, you wouldn't even, that wouldn't even have factored into their consciousness. So there, I think there has been just a pronounced awareness 
that police, and I don't know if this is the right way to describe it, but seem to prioritize officer safety over public safety, um, even if you just remove the mm. racial component from it completely. Yes, yes. But then there's the whole other side of it. And I, I want you to address what I just said there, but I also want you to address this whole other side of it that we really haven't talked about yet is the system that all this feeds into where America has literally the highest percentage of their own people in prison of any country in the world. Mm -hmm. That's extremely significant. And it's obviously playing a direct role in the way that policing works right now. And I want you to go back into some of that history as well, because we can generally speaking, I, I can point to some of these examples in time where like, you know, when SWAT teams got formed, when the police started trying to wage war with the Black Panthers, when COINTELPRO started, you know, when the drug wars really ramped up in different eras in the Nixon era and the Reagan era. But I don't hear very many people breaking down when the sort of mass incarceration system, when that became so pronounced and so much crazier than most other countries in the world. I mean, how long has America had that specific problem sort of lurking in the shadows? Yeah. Short answer to the last part is basically since the 80s, um, you know, as recently as the 60s, the prison population was, you know, not large. Uh, now there's 2 million people in prison and 7 million, if you count everyone who's on probation and parole, um, so under supervision. And, you know, that really is a product basically of the 80s. I mean, maybe the worst years, you know, policy wise might have been like 86 to 96. Um, but, you know, I would say from like 75, you know, quite frankly, to like five years ago, I mean, you know, not that long ago, five, 10 years ago, um, you know, there was a lot of of legislation that sort of was building. But I would say, you know, you look at the late 80s. And the early 90s is probably the most intense period for mass incarceration. Um, I, as I posited in my book, Shackled and Chain, I think that's not a coincidence. I, I think that my own theory about the, the fall of crime, I don't know if this is the only quote unquote crime, violent crime, the only issue, but I do actually think that it is connected with the social uh, unacceptability of crack. Like I think when crack first came out, people didn't really know what it was. Um, it sparked this massive, huge economy uh, out of, you know, a widespread drug trade. Of course, not just black people, but, it, you know, it hit oppressed communities hard first. But obviously, many white people were also smoking crack and others. But be that as it may, it created this massive, you know, drug industry that I think sort of rose and fell ultimately. And I think the, the sort of social stigma around crack, the violence that took place, um, you know, played a big role in sort of, you know, tape, things tapering off. But I say all that just to say that, you know, really the sort of mass incarceration uh, issue, and this speaks to the last issue I'm speaking about, is obviously just one response. So I don't want to make it like one-to-one. -one. Like, I don't want it to be like, yeah, it was really violent and terrible, and that's why they brought these police, these prisons in. Um, you know, I definitely am not one of these people who wants to be out here romanticizing this period, um, I think as some have, but I do think that, you know, at the end of the day, when you really look at it, the deeper social policies that led for this to happen, you know, deeply indict the people who are trying to contain the problem rather than solve them. Because it's not just that there were other ways of dealing with it. They knew there were other ways of dealing with it, but they just weren't going to do that. And so they had to use the ideological sheen of the like existential threat 
of the war on drugs to isolate and obfuscate the deeper issue of why these things were even happening and, you know, what is behind, you know, the reality of, of drug addiction. You know, I once went on the, when I was actually writing the book, I went on like the White House, like all drug affairs council, whatever it is, something that I knew would be like pro-drug warrior to look at like why they said people use drugs. And, you know, I wasn't that shocked at their answers because it's pretty obvious, right? Like the number one was like to escape their problems. And number two was boredom. So like, what does that tell you right there? That like, we have a problem, we, we have a serious problem in this country where like enough people are in such dire straits that they just need to do anything possible to escape reality. And then on the second hand, the, our, our culture is so soulless and vacuous and empty that like the only way to enjoy yourself is to, you know, seek chemical assistance. I mean, if that isn't an indictment of capitalism as much as any, I really don't know what is. And I think that at the end of the day, rather than address that, right, like address the problems people have and address the fact that like the capitalist drone, you know, mentality that we're taught to live with is deeply socially, culturally, emotionally unfulfilling. Like, why would you do that though? Because if you're a billionaire, you are unfulfilled. You have whatever you want because money, you know, as Marx says, capitalism, money, capitalist power, um, and the system benefits you. So at the end of the day, like that's what we're really seeing. Like who really makes the laws? Politicians, who controls politicians? Rich people. Rich people don't want the system to change, and they've set up a system of law enforcement that is designed to make sure that it doesn't, and that has, you know, very skillfully used white supremacy and the racialization of crime and poverty and the perception that it's only in these communities and those people that these bad things are happening to create a really potent politics that honestly has sadly confused a lot of working class people about where their true interests lie. Um, and, and, you know, I think we have to start to break down a lot of these barriers and understand that. And I think that is happening more now. I think that's why you're starting to see these shifts in public opinion, because I think it's it's clearer than it has been, um, you know, in a while, quite frankly. And yeah, as for the police themselves, yeah, I mean, I definitely think they have officer first mentality. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you know, the police also kill many non-black people every year. And it's also usually in circumstances that, the ones I've seen at least are pretty dodgy and sort of similar piece. It's not dis. the reason it makes less news. And this is what a lot of people don't understand because people will say this, well, more white people are killed by the police than black people, which is true numerically. Um, but it's about proportion to percentage of the population is why you notice it more, right? It yeah. theoretically is more white, more white people numerically, but since it's fewer percentage wise, it's not as big of an impact. And I think the way sort of like raw numbers and percentages can play tricks on your mind like that. Like, I think some people say that in bad faith, but I do think you could ask that question in good faith if you were just coming to it and say, well, what does this say? And I think understanding the difference between raw numbers and percentages in terms of differential impact, like how it hits you, I think is actually very important. But I don't want to minimize, you know, Native Americans, I actually think actually have the highest rate of people who are killed um, by the police. Many Latino people are killed by the police. Many white people are killed by the police. And what you know, and the People's Policy Project did an interesting paper on this recently that people can see, is that across all demographics, the people killed by far the most are poor people. And, you know, like almost all black people are killed at a higher rate than almost everyone else, except for the richest to the top fifth, the top quintile of black people, the like five black people that are in that category are killed less than poor white people. Um, but outside of that, all black people, no matter what, are 
you know, considered to be are killed at a higher percentage. And it's an interesting commentary. And this is why I want to talk about this percentages, because, you know, the there's so many more poor black people killed than rich black people, which speaks to one other element of the police killings is that it's also very place based. The perception in the mind of the police, the police that they can get away with killing you, I think seems to be what these numbers imply to me seem to be heavily based on whether or not they feel like anyone's going to care about you. Because, you know, if you're in a poor neighborhood, no matter where you are, you're just some, you know, average everyday poor person. They, you know, they know the chances of anyone caring are pretty low. But the more money you have, the nicer neighborhood you're in, probably the more likely the officers think, well, maybe I should think person first rather than officer first, because I could lose something if I kill this person. And I think, you know, those type of conversations are the type of conversations probably happening in the heads of these people. And it also shows how much poverty is racialized when you look at how the black uh, rate of killing is so much higher, but differential between black people. You can see that, you know, cops see black person and kind of regardless of who you are, they identify you with a certain stereotype of a working class, poor person considered to be a criminal, a thug, a so-called super predator in Hillary Clinton's words. Um, and it obviously plays a huge role in the perception of, of danger. And then in any poor community, it seems very clear that the police have a higher disregard for life, whether you be white, whether you be Latino. So obviously, some of the Latinos, indigenous, there's a lot of racism there too, but you know, whites aren't being racist against whites, but they're obviously, you know, value the life of poor whites, the police much less than they do, um, you know, rich whites. So obviously that issue of, of the disposability of life and how it's racially and class coded, maybe that didn't make a lot no, of sense, but I think it's a really interesting commentary. No. Yeah, for sure. I was just going to ask you about the, the whole concept of a no knock raid can't imagine that no-knock raids are done very often, or if at all, on wealthy families or health households. I mean, it seems like it seems like something that's exclusively done to disenfranchise people. Yeah. You know, it goes along with the concept that you've heard, even going as far back as like black civil rights movements. Um, you know, in the 1960s, about how police would police those communities in the same way that soldiers would would go around vietnam and, and treat the Viet Cong. It, it's it feels like something that is comes out of like a warlike mentality yeah yeah honing in on that just that one concept for a second of what a no-knock raid is and why it's even being done i mean what can you say about the idea that no-knock raids are being done this frequently and breonna taylor's death as a result of a no-knock raid yeah, no-knock raid that seemed to be a part of a broader attempt to gentrify the neighborhood, um, you know, by clearing out the perception of a criminal element, you know, the perception that certain types of black people will uh, repel certain types of white people because they appear to be criminals. Um, you know, I, I think the no-knock raid, which is deeply tied to the war on drugs, the so the sort of technical reasoning behind it, the reason the cops will say it's okay is, well, you know, if you're going to get a, a fugitive warrant, you know, you're going after a high level fugitive and it's someone who's been involved in gang violence or whatever and has a gun charge, you know, they could be well armed, blah, blah, blah. And if we announce ourselves, they'll start shooting first and we're more likely to get killed. Instead, you should just let us take them by surprise. So ultimately, it requires a judge to agree that. Without any sort of real, I mean, they have to present evidence, but without any trial that you are so potentially dangerous that the police should have the opportunity to kill you before 
you kill them, which is extraordinarily prejudicial, right? I mean, if allegedly you're innocent until proven guilty, I mean, I know you're serving a warrant, but like who says that you committed that crime? You know what I mean? You haven't been convicted of the crime, um, but a judge has to essentially say you are you, I mean, because why would you grant it if you're not essentially saying, yeah, this person is so dangerous? So, you know, I think that when you look at the amount of firepower the police bring to the table, I often find I find it to be pretty dubious. I mean, I, I just don't know. Where are these criminals that are like out shooting the police at every turn? Like, wouldn't there just be like rampant, um, you know, purge style realities every day if like there were these, you know, super. I mean, you know what I'm saying? They're acting like you know, low-level drug dealers are, you know, ISIS or something like that and can amount like a full-scale assault on the state and, you know, establish their own government in parts of the... It just... It's it's absurd. There are a lot of assault weapons on the street, but the military force of the state... I get... You know, one time I remember I was living in Southeast D.C. and a guy shot at a cop, like, on my street, you know? Um, it was, like, five in the afternoon. I don't know the whole story, but, like... Um, so I'm just sitting there and you hear, you definitely hear like the gun go off. I don't know who had shot at who, but it was real close. So, you know, I hit the ground because I don't know what's going on. I, used, I could see people running by. Da, 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 da. So a couple minutes go past and it kind of like clears out. And I like leaned my head out the door real quick. And I saw someone was like, what happened? And like someone just shot at a cop. And if I can sit within, oh, I don't know, 15-ish minutes, there were definitely like 20 cops in the immediate two blocks within like 20 minutes i mean there must have been hundreds of cops and they had sealed off my entire like the two block radius around where i live completely sealed off they had helicopters overhead they uh had like swat teams that the apartment building next to me i lived in a house there's an apartment building next to me there was like some swat team that i don't know what kind of warrant they had or if they had one but they just kicked down the back door and were like going in the building and it was you know, there was things going on, perhaps, maybe, I can't say, um, uh, in this building. Who knows? But, you know, it had a reputation. Um, and, you know, I think as far as I can tell, they were just, like, kicking down doors. At one point, because we had, like, a tall fence, like one of those privacy, wood privacy fences in our backyard. And at one point, they thought the guy might have been hiding in my backyard. And I just, like, was trying to look out back through, like, the upstairs window, which is how I caught sight of it. And they had, like... 15 cars like in the alley behind like just like rounded there's so many cops maybe like 50 and they were like looking over the fence and you know i'll be honest i hid in the closet because i was like fuck it i don't want them to catch wind of me uh i'm like a young black person and like a relatively nice house uh just kind of standing here looking at them they might think i'm the person they don't know i don't know what description they have so the description is always like every 100 black people in a vicinity of a crime um you know it's never specific so anyway long story short like i mean they just completely shut shut it down i mean there was no i mean you know what what is this the police are outgunned the police are outmanned the police can't go after someone like one or two people who's allegedly dangerous i mean in 20 minutes they had a whole neighborhood completely shut down and we're going house to house searching people helicopters I mean, it was unbelievable i've never seen anything like it i mean it was like a surgical military style shutdown of an entire two block radius rapidly like you know this type of thing you must plan and train for because they did it so quickly it was unbelievable um and you know just to end the story here though about the ineffectiveness of the police uh they did not catch the guy <laughs> <laughs> yeah there was some like woods near there and based on where he took off from the story i read in the news 
I think he was able to make it to the woods. So by the time they got more cops there, and, and like you know, and it's a thicket back there. You can't. It's not like trails and shit. So yeah, you know, I guess that's for all that. That's what they got. But it just shows, like, you know, I think so much of so much of policing is predicated on the fact that it's much more dangerous than it is. Um, you know, it's more dangerous to be like a garbage man. Certainly to cut down trees. Uh, it's more dangerous to do you know sixteen or seventeen other jobs. Um, I think it's more dangerous to be a taxi driver, if I'm not mistaken, than to be a police officer. Uh, I wish I had the list in front of me because some of them are unbelievable. Oh, airline pilots, airline pilots. It's actually safer to be a police officer than an airline pilot and flight engineer. I don't even know what that all encompasses. And when I read that and like the OSHA breakdown, I have to say I became very concerned. Um, like what are these pilots dying of and when are they dying? Um, (laughs) And like, what are they, is it like on air? Is it when they land? So that, that's something that we need to dig a little bit more into, but you know, OSHA does the numbers every year as do a couple other entities. And it's, I think it's deaths in a, I don't know if it's per one, I think it's per 1000 employees and police are, I mean, they're not nowhere on the list. Uh, Farm workers are higher up on the list, a huge number of jobs uh, that you would just never expect are much more dangerous than being a police officer, you know, the average police officer, you know, I don't know the exact percentage, but I saw it, but I, I remember the average police officer, I think, doesn't ever use their weapon and a very good percentage of them never even draw it while on duty. Um, there's a whole, there's a, a very different perception than a reality of what policing really is. And I think people in real life know that because like, you know, you see them out in society. You know, we, we haven't really touched on the Trump era hardly at all <laughs> yeah. since we've been talking. But, I mean, we talked about how terribly the pandemic's been handled. And there's a whole other component to this. I mean, Trump did his Mount Rushmore speech. He did his Fourth of July speech where he essentially, you know, rhetorically acted like he's going to wage war against the left, uh, the communists, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, just essentially the left in general. The, the idea that he was going to call out the army was scary. I was frightened by it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he ultimately didn't do it. It seemed like a bluff. But on the other hand, there does seem to be a bizarre heightened state that a lot of regular police around the country seem to be in. And you touched on it when you were just talking about, you know, what is it that makes police so terrified for their lives if they actually aren't that? endangered statistically you know what is it that makes a cop break down in tears because uh someone you know at mcdonald's doesn't give her her complete mcdonald's order and what makes her interpret that as some kind of terrorist attack or the shake shack thing uh you know the whole diarrhea incident there's so many bizarre things like that happening and if i really go back and think about it maybe there were two big things and i guess if you want to count chris dorner that involved people targeting mm, police mm-hmm. that were that were sort of uh you know that they really um i guess really terrified them to this day was that incident with the sniper um and then yeah there there's the guy in dallas a couple years ago the guy who sniped those killed those five cops at that protest oh and they blew him up with a bomb in the in the parking garage yeah was Dallas. And you know, one of those cops is probably a white supremacist. Uh, we reported on this at the time on By Any Means Necessary when I had a radio show, By Any Means oh, wow. Necessary on Radio Sputnik. We reported on this. The guy it, it had like some history and some tattoos 
tied to Whoa. some of the racist white supremacist gangs in the LA Sheriff's Department where he had also worked. So no one looked into it because he died, you know, and it was this whole thing. But it seemed like a pretty strong connection at the time. I mean, I wow. can't say for sure, but I mean, it, it did not seem coincidental. It seemed like he was embedded in one of those racist gangs, which are endemic to the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. It's still an issue today. There's ongoing litigation and investigations about that. The former sheriff, Lee Baca, uh, at the highest levels, people should look into this, have been uh, investigated. Many, many gangs of different types, including white supremacist gangs, the Vikings being one of the most well-known. And I believe that was the one that this guy was affiliated with. I'd have to go back and check my records. But yeah, unknown part of that story, but I, I don't know. To me, that whole story, that thing was a sort of weird side thing. And then you had the issue of them blowing him up with yeah. this bomb, this like never before used robot bomb That was thing. crazy. I, I don't know. A lot of elements of that were just like a little unnerving. Yeah, so I guess I'm just trying to think of, you know, not giving the police the benefit of the doubt for their bizarre, semi-delusional mentality that they have these days. But it's not just that it's delusional that's scary. It's that they seem to be more on a hair trigger and dehumanizing people, including protesters, leftists, more than usual, and maybe could see it as an incremental increase over time. But it seems to be something more than that. And I'm just wondering... What do you think explains the way that the police were so openly, brazenly um, violent towards protesters this time around? And not just that, but the leaked recordings and social media postings that we started seeing between you know local law enforcement all over the country, where they were posting things like "All Lives Splatter again." You know, more like to mm -hmm. me, it seemed like an amped up version of what we had seen before. It seemed like there was something amped up about the mentality all around the country. And did you see that? And where, where do you think that is coming from? Yeah, I mean, I think I did kind of feel that. I think a lot of people did. Like, I mean, I, I don't know if it's real yet or if we just felt it, but it did feel like the police, like when they tased that couple in Atlanta in that car, it just seemed like a lot of things that were happening that just seemed like what you wouldn't do. Like, it seems like you would be thinking to yourself, like, well, I'm not trying to get caught on camera randomly killing someone or beating someone up. Because even if you are that person, you'd think you'd be a little bit more cautious yeah. given the moment. And the fact that it's been the other way. I mean, the only thing I can think of is that they feel so threatened. They, they feel the only way out is to fight their way out. Because I think ultimately, in their heart of hearts, they know what they're doing is wrong. I, I actually... I mean, I've interacted over time via panels, which is the worst way to know people. But I've been on a lot of panels over the years where I'm like, quote unquote, representing Black Lives Matter, not the organization. But there's a lot of, as you said, there's a difference between the organization and the movement. But a lot of the media just does not care about that. So you know, <laughs> I'm allegedly there as that person. And then there's some cop or some police union official. And I never really get the sense that they actually don't know what they're doing is wrong because they're usually always just making dissembling excuses for what it is like they're not really going aggressively against what you're saying they're just trying to constantly excuse it and spin it away so i i rarely get the sense um and you know not every encounter with the police ends in the way some of the worst ones do so it seems to me that like you obviously have a range of conduct that you can engage in um and like so to some extent to say like this is just like circumstantial. Nah, it seems pretty purposeful to me. Um, and I think that 
when you know that you've done so many bad things, or even if you personally haven't done them, you've just been complicit in them because you haven't done anything. I mean, you know, what's, what's pretty consistent about police violence is this. Almost every cop who kills someone has a disciplinary record of beating someone up and doing other things. Usually it's pretty long. Um, most, you know, it's, it's a relatively small number of cops that get use of force complaints, but it's often the same, you know, if you have one, you know, you're more likely to have another. And I once saw an interesting poll, Huffington Post carried the article, I don't know who did the polls a couple of years ago, that like 75% of cops or some number around that thought that the worst officers in their department were not held accountable. So it seems to me that there's actually a very clear knowledge within policing of the problems that exist. Every black ex-cop I've ever talked to in my entire life uh, that has... Okay, well, maybe this isn't a good sample because I guess I don't talk to a lot of like patriotic like, <laughs> pro police. Okay, whatever. I've talked to, okay, so this is anecdotal. I'll admit that. But I've talked to so many black cops, like maybe all the ones I've talked to who are retired, who are, you know, 100% aware and have confirmed for me that, like, yeah, people are definitely know what's going on and they rationalize it, they accept it, they participate in it, whatever it is, the institution. A few bad apples, great. I love it. Keep saying a few bad apples because the whole quote is a few bad apples spoils the whole bunch. So that's the reality. The whole bunch is completely and totally spoiled. They all know that they're complicit in it. And I think the Chris Dorner, the situation in Dallas, look, this is America. America is strapped up. Realistically, the police are, are militarily, individually vulnerable. When they mass up together, they're the most powerful force. But when they're just out on the street one-on-one, -on -one, you know, someone could seek revenge against them. And they've, there's so many negative things being done by the police to people. How wild is it to think someone might seek revenge? I'm not authorizing it. I'm not saying people should do it. I'm not advocating for it. I'm just saying it kind of makes sense. Like any occupying army, you know, the people who are being occupied, and that's basically the situation the police are in, are, you know, ultimately not just going to accept it. And, you know, may at some point seek some sort of revenge or retribution in an individual way that may not like change society per se, but like that could kill you individually. And I think that there's a deep feeling of fear. This is, again, just anecdotal. I think there's a deep feeling of fear amongst the police that what they've done is so wrong that like it's possible they could be held responsible. And I think the movement on the streets is fearful to them because what it is more than anything is that they could be held responsible. Like it really does mean they could be held responsible. Like, I don't think the government is going to defund the police. I think they'll make some differences, but like the police are too essential. Um, maybe they'll defund some aspects of it, but they might try to make people more accountable for killing people um, to try to eliminate the problem or to try to ameliorate the problem a little bit more. I think the fear of accountability, I think is real. I think that's why the police, like if you thought you were always right, you wouldn't fight for all these levels of accountability that make it almost impossible to hold you responsible. Yeah. Because you wouldn't feel like you needed anything other than a good reason. Exactly. But you know you don't have a good reason and you got to cover your ass. And I think so much, I think the fear of accountability plays into a lot of police actions that they have to crush, they feel like they have to crush this movement because this movement is potentially what they fear most, which is that all the bad things they know they've done or been complicit in doing, said nothing about, even though they knew it was happening, um, could come back and, and you know, seek justice and retribution. Completely, yeah. I mean, the idea of the fear of accountability, I think, is driving a lot of this. Um, you can even see how parts of the corporate world are reacting to this as they're, you know, posting, like Chase Bank, for example, posting Black Lives Matter on their website. Mm -hmm. That kind of, to me, reeks of the f a fear of accountability, um, 
There might be yeah. other corporations, you know, maybe some of these younger people and these corporations, these Silicon Valley ones, maybe they genuinely in their hearts believe what they're saying for legitimate reasons. But I think for the most part, there is a lot of fear of accountability. I mean, CNN and MSNBC pretend like they have solidarity with a lot of this stuff, but there's a fear of accountability there too, because if they were really fully accountable, we'd see different type of coverage from them. And, you know, the type of coverage they do uh, could almost be described as like a limited hangout version of like what this movement is really about. So I think that's happening on so many levels. There's another aspect to this that we didn't really touch on. and, And I wanted to talk to you about this, I guess, to close out the episode is, you know, we're talking about what this, this fear that police must be feeling, um, this fear of accountability that's causing them to maybe react more violently than they have in the past. Uh, there's this, you know, this other factor of Trump and his rhetoric mm-hmm. and what, you know, not saying that all police are conservatives or, you know, read internet conspiracy theories, but there just seems to be something to what Trump is trying to do. And I don't know if he's even that effective, but I guess, how do you feel about just the way that the Trump era is playing into this? And I don't even necessarily want to go down the rabbit hole of if he's going to impose a fascist government or not, because maybe ultimately he's too incompetent to do that. But I think the point is more about, you know, that he could still create chaos. He could still create violence. And he does seem to be empowering and emboldening some of the more ugly tendencies of people who are, you know, authoritarians, like police, law enforcement agencies. So how do you feel about that? And how do you like address that even on your show? Because I know, I know a lot of leftists, you know, even that I'm a fan of tend to avoid this issue of Trump. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we try to, on on breakthrough, breakthrough news and the work we do, we try to definitely put Trump in context. Like it's rarely just Trump, but obviously I think you're, you're hitting on a, on a big connection. I mean, Trump, and I think this is part of why the police support him so much. I mean, Obama did basically nothing on this issue, but he at least was like pretending like he wanted to do something. You know, the consent decrees, which I do not really believe make a huge difference in police behavior, but do reveal a lot of like the broad crimes of the police in these areas, um, you know, were something that really upset the cops because it just used statistics to show that they weren't accomplishing much of anything other than being very racist and violent. Um, but be that as it may, Trump came in at the opposite. They ended basically doing all consent decrees. Rhetorically, Trump will go to any length to defend the police. The way he's de- tr- deploying the federal police, using the Joint Terrorism Task Force and other things to provide even more largesse on the police, returning to give them the the different you know money, trying to pass laws that are favorable to them. I think that he his actions have totally emboldened the police. I think he's saying, "Go hog wild, do whatever you want," and you know I got your back regardless. And I think it's hard to. To, to separate those two things for sure. I think Trump absolutely has emboldened. I mean, I think Trump, you know, ultimately people say Trump, I think Trump represents some complicated tendencies, but I think he represents some relatively clear tendencies. And, you know, I'm not, I, I don't want to go into the whole thing here now as we get to the end, but I think as it concerns the issue of law and order politics, you know, Trump represents a legitimate faction of people who, you know, two legitimate, fa- I think a legitimate faction of people who really do feel that either Either A, 
that like law and order policies are right. You know what I mean? That like using these sorts of like the way to address quote unquote crime and quote unquote political unrest, because a lot of this is about that. The police violence, as you mentioned, the anti-pipeline laws and things like that. Similar to the Nixon administration, you see a lot of people kind of mixing the issue of like lawlessness, whether it be protest or quote unquote crime, um, you know, together. Of course, you know, trying to make the connection to the so-called Ferguson effect, both then and now between protest and quote unquote rising crime. Um, this is a very consistent theme that we see. And so either they believe that or B, they find it convenient as part of a broader argument that, you, you know, it's the same argument whether you believe it or not. But if, you know, don't sincerely believe it as part of a broader argument that we need to use military force to control the so-called dangerous classes of people, which goes back to the root of policing in this country and like modern policing as we know it, which is basically, you know, founded in urban areas during the sort of rise of the capitalist area, Charleston, South Carolina, Boston, um, you know, New York, Charleston, obviously the first with the so-called city guards, really about controlling the slaves and keeping them from rising up in Charleston in this urban environment where rather than the different plantations, all the slaves are living together in one quarter, making them much more dangerous. What time period um, was control a part of the city? What time period? This is the 1790s. Okay. Um, the year 1790, in fact. Then in the 1830s, you have the push for the rise of, of I think, modern police departments in a way we would know. And they lay this out directly. I mean, you know, in Boston, the decade before the police were instituted, the crime actually dropped for a decade. Um, so it wasn't that crime was rising. But when you look at, like, the Boston Council at the time, they basically said the problem is we got all these immigrants coming from Europe. Um, who, you know, don't have New England training, they use that phrase, New England training, and can only be controlled by the force of the state. And it's very clear, because back then you could be like as classes and races as you wanted and no one cared, right? Because it was there was no smokescreen. There was not even anything close to the, even the little bit of democracy we have today. It's even less than that. So, you know, it's more explicit. And they're just straight up saying, like, the challenges of urban America at the dawn, or not the dawn, but really as the capitalist system starts to take off, is concomitant with the rest of the police then and now crime is 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 predetermined there's dangerous people and that's you know who's gone after it has nothing to do with actual crime um you know i mean if the police only solve like 17 percent of property crimes who knows who is committing all those so-called crimes i think many property crimes i wouldn't consider crimes but let's just take it on its own accord and call it a crime if you only saw 17 percent, you can't really tell me anything about who's committing property crimes. If you only solve half the murders, I mean, you could think you could tell me something and you can say, well, based on X, Y, Z, but with that kind of data set, I mean, what do you know? And ultimately most of it is being predisposed to have a policy of, of brutal force style control over certain communities that have already been deemed to be subordinate and potentially dangerous because of that position. Uh, of real material subordinates that they've been put in. So, you know, I, I think that's sort of how I look at that. And I think that Trump very much represents that form of politics, the type of politics that is will, that is looking to can, to exploit to the maximum degree all racism and racially tinged grievances to create a, 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 a plurality. Because, you know, the average president usually only gets between 25 and 32% of all voting eligible, of voting age people, so not voting eligible people in prison, but voting age people, all people over 18, um, 25 to 32%. So that's another thing people should realize. Like these aren't like 
huge coalitions they're building, even though it's large numbers, 60 million people. But they're exploiting every racial grievance and all racial grievance politics and other, you know, quote unquote wedge issues, although I don't really like that term, to create a plurality coalition that can take power in the name of the unbridled rule of capital. Like that's what Trump really represents is the unbridled rule of capital. He's rolling back every single regulation on the books that's designed to regulate corporations in any way, shape or form or protect workers in any way, shape or form. Um, in the meatpacking industry, they're pushing a massive speed up you know, letting people run these plants, 175 birds a minute coming down this line. You imagine the people who are going to lose limbs and die more than they almost already are. One of the top industries for musculoskeletal injuries, uh, you know, attacking and pushing back on the rules that make McDonald's not complicit for the poverty wages. Uh, I mean, all these different things that are happening on so many different levels. And, you know, that's what Trump represents, the unbridled rule of capital, um, that you, the U.S. can go anywhere, anytime to do anything and not for any high and mighty democracy. Trump doesn't even care. He's ripping the mask off for the rule of the almighty dollar. Like, get the oil. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Trump is, it's what we all know is happening, but Trump is just doing it. And I think that that kind of naked right-wing politics can only exist as a power politic. And so in its domestic base, it's rooted in a politic of, of, of power over uh, marginalized people sort of by dividing um, sort of the working and middle classes around a politics of scarcity that, you know, there's like an Occam's razor they try to play out. And you look at the age of the average Fox viewer, right? Just think about it. Like the Occam's razor is, well, when things were good, like what were black people doing? Were there gay people everywhere? Were women doing X, Y, and Z? And like, well, no. And so you could say, well, like, don't those two things seem connected? Now, obviously they aren't. But Occam's razor, if you know, you're not exposed to all the information, whatever, whatever, you're in a homogenized environment, it makes sense that you can mobilize people on the basis that your life has gotten worse while theirs has gotten better. They're, the lives of like the average black person have not gotten better, but more black people are involved at the higher level of civil society because there's more um, desegregation. And so it appears as if there's been vast material change, even though there hasn't, because there's been vast cultural change in the representation of black people in America. But the way we perceive our own lives is not just based on like the raw data produced by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's what we see, it's what we feel, it's what we can intuit. And if you live in a small town in Iowa, and there's now 30% of the people are Latino, if, you know, you may anticipate, you may intuit all these things that are completely false, but nevertheless, you do, right? Like there's an Occam's razor to it. Like, wow, before these people were here, we had this great furniture factory. Well, like they don't work at the furniture factory. Like the furniture factory is gone. There's no real connection between the two other than like the industries that are here now are using undocumented people so they don't have to pay any money and can make themselves rich. But you can, Occam's razor, you're looking for someone to blame. That's like the easiest, lowest hanging fruit. And that kind of like power politics of Trump, like we're going to just smash our enemies and destroy them and do whatever we want. And we're like openly going to do it in the name of of Christianity, white supremacy and capitalism. Um, I don't think it speaks to the vast majority of the nation, but you don't need the vast majority of the nation to win the presidency. You just need the most solid block in the right geographic areas. Yeah, well, I guess I won't really ask you about um what a joe biden presidency would look like in terms of <laughs> policing <laughs> yeah Jesus. <laughs> but uh but i mean we we know his record we know his past i don't know eugene i mean we could we could talk for hours about this i know I, i've kept you for a long time now i really appreciate you discussing these subjects with me and we should do it again sometime 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I really appreciate you, Robbie. I'm a big fan of Media Roots, and I'm always happy to come on. So definitely looking forward to doing it again. Thanks, man. And where can people find your book? And where can people check out your new show or the show that you launched five months ago? Yes. Well, you can get the book a lot of places. Um, you just Google it, Shackled and Chain, or search it however you want. Shackled and Chain, Mass Incarceration in Capitalist America. Uh, there's a number of different options uh, for it to get there. I'm not going to promote anyone uh, commercially, but Shackled and Chain, Mass Incarceration in Capitalist America. And yeah, Breakthrough News. You can check us out a lot of different ways, but probably the easiest way is on Instagram and on Twitter. We're at BT Newsroom. That's the letter BT. So at BT Newsroom. And then we're also BT Newsroom on Facebook. We're also on YouTube as Breakthrough News, but at BT Newsroom, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can easily find us and check out everything. And you're also on Twitter at Eugene Per Year. You got it. At Eugene Per Year is me on Twitter. Well, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. Thanks again for listening to Media Roots Radio, everybody. I just want to give a shout out also to our new Patreon subscribers. We really appreciate you. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon subscriber of Media Roots Radio, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash media roots radio. And if you donate $5 a month or $5 per creation, you get access to all our bonus episodes. And usually every fourth episode of the month will be a bonus episode for patrons only. But all of our other episodes are available to everybody. So thank you so much for listening. Please stay well out there. Take care.